This is the Animal's Eye View podcast, and I'm your host, Lizanne Flynn. There's a funny kind of English, I guess, turn of phrase that I kind of like using in an affectionate manner with someone who really tickles my fancy, who I think is maybe pretty cool, and that is, you're the bee's knees. And when I looked this up, apparently there was, right around the time in America of the 1920s, think the Roaring Twenties, you know, things were kind of all coming out from under wraps, and there were, you know, as I think probably every point in culture has it, there were terms that kind of went the rounds. I know I get grief from my kids all the time about sometimes using phrases and they just look at me (laughs) and they say things like, no, mom, no, 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 just don't say that. Don't say that ever again, (laughs) which makes me laugh. But so the bee's knees, the other one that I guess was kind of making the rounds around that point in time, and maybe it still does to this day, you know, things like the cat's whiskers. I also sometimes say to someone, oh, I just think you're the cat's pajamas. I also thought, well, I can't very well say that about cats and not say that about other species. And so I've reverted to saying, oh, I just think you're the dog's tuxedo. But apparently there were also things like other animal attribute pairings, such as uh, being the elephant's adenoids, the cat's meow, which is kind of a variation on the aforementioned cat's whiskers and cat's pajamas, the ant's pants, the tiger's spot, the bullfrog's beard, etc., which are mostly long forgotten now because, you know, with humans, any as you all can probably attest, things move in and out of favor sometimes re- relatively quickly. Bees are actually really in, an incredible species, and they're actually very social and quite efficient. There's, speaking of what used to happen then, there's a tradition apparently that started over in Europe and somehow probably made its way across the pond as the saying goes, when European settlers came over here, which is the tradition of telling the bees. And as folklore would have it, As people, humans, perceived bees to be, again, incredibly social and efficient beings, and not necessarily, I wouldn't say, actually delicate, but I think people who have really formed a relationship with bees would tell you that because they are as highly social as they are, if you are a keeper of bees, then they are also perhaps really affected by the energy environment around them and thus also their keeper, the beekeeper. And so the telling of the bees was that telling the bees going out to the hives, 
plural or hive if you just had one, and telling them of, say for instance, a death in the family, or if someone had just had a baby, or if someone had just gotten married. And so I think the belief behind it, or perhaps the energy, the intention, that being everything of course on this planet, was to kind of keep the bees into the in the loop of what was going on kind of like this extended energetic household not really anything <laughs> different than what I probably preach to all of my clients about well did you tell them you were going to be bringing home that dog or cat did you tell them that you were going to be in the hospital for a few days did you tell them that Oh, by the way, things in my relationship with my partner have gotten to such a point that we're going to be living together. And oh, yes, by the way, they're moving in this weekend, not only them, but as well their companion animal, dog, cat, bird, ferret, goldfish. And I, and I think probably in olden times, if I use, might use that phrase myself, I think it was thought that to, to curry favor with the bees would maybe likely mean that the bees would be more relaxed and would probably go about their job of making not only honey for themselves but then as a byproduct for the beekeepers to harvest the honey from the hives. And there's also actually by the way a book by the by that same name telling the bees which I happen to read at some point in time. I'll see if I can find a link to the book for you because I think you would really like the story it's basically set in modern times. It's actually set in, I think it's California, and it definitely is a work of fiction, but the really interesting thing is that it kind of has the overarching information about the the language of bees, if you will, and how bees interact not only with their environment and how they interact with the natural world, which we'll get to in just a, a hot second, but also how we form relationships with them and they with us. Bees dance to communicate to others in the hive where the food is surrounding the hive. When science has basically been able to study bees and they're just like, well, how, how is it possible that when all of these bees leave the hive and of course absent telepathic communication because of course science wouldn't necessarily believe that bees are capable of telepathy. I would beg to differ with that. That bees would be dancing, if you will, and kind of wiggling and waggling in a certain direction, which translated means, okay, so if you want to find the nearest location of food and nectar to bring back into the hive, you're going to want to head out and it's going to be about maybe 30 degrees, 60 degrees, 90 degrees, etc from this particular angle going off of the entrance to the hive. Bees are actually incapable of flight based on their aerodynamics. You know, when you look at a bird, a bird will basically flap up and down in order to get going. Birds' wings being feathers and birds' wings also, the bones in birds' wings are actually hollow and so it makes them of course a lot uh, lighter. It wasn't until humans really studied how bees' wings worked is that they figured out they weren't just going up and down but they were actually moving front to back. And their movement, the actually very specific design of the bee body, makes them capable of carrying heavier loads like pollen and like nectar 
back to the hive itself. Bees can also see in UV light. Flowers and the blooms actually have patterns and markings in UV light. And the fact that those species that are capable of pollination, bees, like bats as well, make nectar easier to find. And it's actually been estimated that 80% of the crops in the U.S. Um, are pollinated by bees. And so, as I'm sure you might have heard at this point in time, once the bees go, we go as well. The same thing would actually be true of bats. And thinking about bees and the very specialness of bees, it really was heartbreaking for me to read, again, here in the great old state of Colorado, that just recently 30 hives, 30 hives containing 30,000, 30 add three more zero bees, were stolen from a honey farm just situated, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes to 45 minutes north of Denver. And the really heartbreaking thing about this is, of course, bees are under attack by certainly humans on every stretch of the horizon, at least as far as I can see. If we're not poisoning them and causing, you know, hive collapse and uh, colony collapse because of the pesticides that we're spraying on our plants in order to grow bigger and more, because of course human numbers are getting bigger and more, then there's something really egregious and really just nefarious and really kind of just frankly for for only really shadow purposes would you actually steal 30 hives. And hives are not small things. <laughs> hives can be as large as five feet by five feet, depending upon how many combs happen to be inside each particular hive. The main thing about this as well is that these bees were stolen in the dead of winter. Well, not surprisingly, bees are actually pretty fragile in winter. They're not out doing their most active work. They're really counting on the beekeeper to keep their environment as stable as possible and allow the bees to basically overwinter so that come spring the hive can kind of wake up again and go back out into the world and the planet and do all the wonderful fabulous things that bees are able to do. This has also kind of been a little bit in social media and as a little bit of a segue although I admit kind of awkward as it may seem. Not only are pangolins getting a bad rap, but it kind of feels like the bad rap that the pangolins are getting for, I think I think the the headline that I saw the other day that the pangolin is suspected of being the host of coronavirus. And admittedly, this was a Facebook post. You all know how I am about some of those. I do try to refrain at times <laughs> because no good usually comes from it. And I did happen to write in there, let me, you know, hashtag fixed it, where I changed it to humans responsible for a coronavirus outbreak. Because truth in fact, if pangolins weren't being over harvested, and let me give you kind of an, an inside 
track on pangolin. They're actually very shy, very endangered creatures who you honestly, in going out into a forest or a place where pangolins might be gathering, you probably would not be able to to run across a, a pangolin as easily as you might run across, say, a bee or perhaps even a bat. And we'll get to bats in just a second. And so I thought maybe maybe we ought to come up with something you know special about pangolins, like we're talking about the bee's knees. Maybe we ought to talk about the the pangolin's patella, or maybe you know the pangolin's elbow, because just as in bats and bats. As, as you all know, bats having been blamed for carrying rabies and infecting humans with rabies, which again is not dissimilar to, frankly, uh, breed bans, and that's a whole other story that I'll have to get into at some point in time. Um, suffice it to say, here in Denver just recently, the city council voted to lift the breed-specific ban, which I think is wonderful news. But less than 1% of bats carry rabies, and quite frankly, more people die each year from rabid dog bites. And oh, by the way, every single mammal on the planet is capable, can get, and can carry rabies. The thing about bats is that they are not asymptomatic carriers of the disease. When we talk about mammal to mammal, and as far as rabies are concerned, more more people die each year from rabid dog bites, and and about thirty thousand people die each year from rabies. But ninety nine percent of those thirty thousand people are dying from rabid dog bites that have nothing whatsoever to do with bats. There's only been two documented cases of dogs contracting rabies from bats directly in the 10 years from 2000 to 2010. And I couldn't help but feel that just as how bats, and again, my friends, once the bees go and once the bats go, because bats are also just as bees, 80% of the crops in the U.S. pollinated by bees, at least a third of the crops, if not more, across the planet are pollinated by bats. And so once the bees goes and the bats goes, there are fruit, our vegetables, our nuts, the food that is grown on the planet also disappears as well. And it just seemed that, again, with the pangolins being the shy and really endangered creatures that they are, let's face it, their bodies are harvested for alleged medicinal purposes. And when I corrected that headline, it was actually about humans responsible for the coronavirus outbreak. Because the the deal is, I perceive, is that when humans use the body for other than what it was meant, and then put it in definitely unclean outdoor markets, there literally is a Pandora's box of rheology which is opened. And then you have species to species cross contamination. When, again, when, when the body of the bat is used only for bat purposes, there is very, again, less than 1% chance of the bat actually sharing the rabies with any other species on the planet. My hunch is that we're going to discover that 
while pangolins might very well have a virus that humans have identified and calling it now a coronavirus, that may very well be like rabies for pangolins. It might very well be that pangolins, like bats, may happen to be not asymptomatic carriers of the coronavirus. When humans project and blame other species for what really can only be our shadow aspect, that's when I think that humans, at least at this current point in time, make the world and the environment seem like a very dark and a very dreary place. Because as I've talked before, I think, I think shadow is going through its death throes. And I think that it's easy enough for us to lose light of the fact that we're still living on a planet of duality. And I have to say that I don't think Shadow would be going through these death row aspects if it didn't know something that we didn't. Because keep in mind, Shadow is just simply the other side of the coin of light. We, we sometimes as humans, we've gone through this, we've gone to this place where we think that, oh, Shadow, yeah, that's that thing way over there. Shadow, Shadow has nothing to do with me. Au contraire. Every one of us has a, a Shadow aspect in ourselves that, as I've talked before, really does deserve to see the light of day. And Shadow really does need to be celebrated for sometimes the life-saving aspects of ourselves individually and of ourselves collectively that we've kind of lost sight of because we've created all these other systems into which we think we can just neatly dump Shadow and kind of tend to either make fun of it, as sometimes we do on uh, nature shows, and kind of make fun about how other animals act, when as humans, the human animal, we're not really any better. And at least from my vantage point, the cruelty of humans honestly knows no bounds. I've talked before about predator and prey, and you will see a moment of disengagement. You will see a moment when either predator or prey goes, oh, yep, mm-hmm, Okay, I'm either going to surrender to this and I've lost this animal experience on this planet at this point in time, usually in a situation where predator is going after prey. There also could be a situation though where predator says, oh, prey is too strong for me. I'm going to have to go and look elsewhere. And they disengage and they back away from that. Why? Because they don't have to. The cruelty of humans, not only, but first and foremost, against those species of who we are actual stewards on this planet, is equal to, absolutely equal to, and probably, and I don't even, I don't even want to draw comparisons because I think they're part and parcel in the same thing, but the cruelty that we exhibit to other fellow humans is also just completely beyond the pale. And we keep doing it. We keep doing it. Throughout history, it has seemed that everywhere you turn, there's the cruelty of humans that we have to contend with. Not only against each other, but against all other sentient beings on the planet. And so while we're making our way, perhaps from duality to mostly light, 
This is a time more than ever, I think, to be vigilant about and to acknowledge and even to embrace the shadow. Just because it seems like things are being dismantled doesn't mean that things are falling apart. It means that they are being dismantled because it's time for things to be dismantled. It's time for things, for cultures, for our treatment of other sentient beings on the planet to move to a different place. I really hope you'll join me there because the animals and I think that you would really like it. I'm Lizanne Flynn. This has been the Animals Eye View podcast. I'll see you next time. Thank you.